Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner, and you are listening to Tent Talks. What you are about to hear is a solo episode that I recorded on internet meme culture. I am an avid student of internet meme culture, and here I present some of my findings derived from years of research mindlessly scrolling on Facebook, liking internet memes. This is the second solo episode that I've done on this podcast. I'm going to call these solo episodes rainy day rumination episodes so as to distinguish them from the main interview discussion episodes that I do. The first solo episode that I did is called Philosophy of Consciousness, which you can find on the stream. And I hope to continue to do more in the future. In all seriousness, while I did do some actual research for this podcast, I don't proclaim to be an expert on any of this stuff. This is just my musings on a topic that I'm personally intrigued by. Just to give some sense of the structure for the episode, I begin by talking about the origin of the concept of a meme as first formulated by Richard Dawkins. Then I give a brief history of internet memes. And then I focus the episode on two aspects of internet meme culture. One, the political aspect of internet memes and the increasing role that memes are playing in the political process. And then two, the absurdist nature of internet memes. And here, I draw a connection between contemporary internet meme culture and the 20th century art movement known as Dadaism. And I argue that both the Dadaism and contemporary internet meme culture illustrate the philosophy of absurdism, Albert Camus' philosophy of absurdism, to be precise. It was fun to record, and I hope you enjoy. was coined by Sir Richard Dawkins in his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. The word is an infusion of the Greek word mememe, which means something imitated, and the English word gene. A meme, in Dawkins' sense, is just any unit of culture, or any cultural entity that is capable of what you might call replication. This cultural entity could be an idea, a behavior, or a custom. Dawkins' main contention is that ideas, like genes, can be transmitted across individuals, And it's this transmission of ideas across individuals that serves as the basis of human culture, according to Dawkins. Dawkins writes, quote, I think that a new kind of replicator has recently emerged on this very planet. It is staring us in the face. It is still in its infancy, still drifting clumsily in its primeval soup, but already it is achieving evolutionary change at a rate that leaves the old gene panting far behind. The new soup is the soup of human culture. Memes spread through human culture as genes spread through the gene pool. End quote. So, in essence, the idea is that memes are to cultural evolution what genes are to biological evolution. Like genes, memes can self-replicate and can respond to selective pressure. But there does seem to be a disanalogy between the two. Specifically, there seems to be an element of randomness involved in gene mutation 
that is not seen in the case of memes. Uh, one figure that's worth mentioning when talking about memes is Susan Blackmore. She's one of the leading figures in the study of memes, and her 2000 book, The Meme Machine, is a landmark book on the study of memes. In the book, Blackmore defends what's called memetics as a science, where critics will claim that memetics is a pseudoscience. But memetics is essentially the study of culture, culture through the lens of Darwinian evolution. Blackmore provides memetic explanations for a range of different things, for example, the origin of language. And she even contends that memes may now in some instances be driving genetic evolution and maybe the cause of the abnormally large brain that we see in Homo sapiens. I don't know enough of the relevant scientific literature to know how radical of a claim this might be that Blackmore is making, but Blackmore observes that human brains started increasing in size at around the same time humans started using tools, where a tool can be seen as a unit of culture and thus a meme. Uh, Blackmore further argues that selection pressure favors those who are good imitators, where imitation can be seen as the practice of transferring memes from one individual to another. So, again, she toys with this radical concept, or maybe it's not so radical, that memetics can actually be driving genetic evolution in some cases. Of course, this episode is focused on the more particular concept of internet memes, where internet memes constitute a subset of the general meme concept described by Dawkins. My research tells me that the concept of the internet meme was first formulated by Mike Godwin in the June 193 issue of Wired. Fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Godwin is the creator of Godwin's Law, and Godwin's Law is really the first, or one of the first at least, official internet memes. And Godwin's Law holds that every conversation eventually leads to a comparison of Hitler and the Holocaust. Um, apparently Godwin created this law as a way to get people to stop comparing everything to the Holocaust. He thought that this comparison, which he apparently observed on a frequent basis in conversations, uh, he thought the comparison did an injustice to the actual horrors of the Holocaust by trivializing the Holocaust, essentially. So to spread awareness about this linguistic phenomena, which he was observing, he injected this law into various corners of the internet. And this became, again, one of the first official internet memes. Was it the first? I don't know, but it's one of the first. It's worth quickly noting here that Godwin's Law is still extremely relevant today, I think, in our current age of exaggerated, sensationalized political rhetoric, where everything is racist and everyone's a Nazi. I'm worried about real racism and about real Nazis, but to make the obvious point, if we keep abusing these words, they eventually lose their meaning, and we end up providing cover for the real racists and the real Nazis. But I digress. Back to internet memes. Internet memes have of course evolved tremendously since the advent of Godwin's Law. They can now be communicated through a variety of mediums. The most popular kind of meme nowadays is probably what's called the image macro meme. So to give a formal definition of an image macro meme, and this, is, this definition is taken from a philosophy article on internet memes. Yes, there are actually philosophers writing about internet memes now. This is one of the only ones that I found though. This is by a philosopher named Simon Irvine, shout out to Simon Irvine, called the anonymity of a murmur. And he defines image macro memes as quote, memes that involve images that are copied from person to person, but customized by users through the addition of text to each new copy, end quote. So, Usually you have a still picture, 
and then meme makers will apply different text to the picture, and that will result in different iterations of the meme. So just to give a couple of, of examples here, and if you're listening to this and have Google, just look up the memes as I'm describing them. So one, one pretty popular one is the stock photo guy checking out a girl meme. So <laughs> if anyone's privy to internet meme culture, they'll probably know at least this meme. So you have a guy with, with presumably his girlfriend, and there's another girl walking by, and he's looking back checking out this other girl, and the girl that he's with has a horrified look on her face. And people will superimpose text onto the guy, his presumed girlfriend, and the other girl walking by. So one example of this is the text on the, the one that I'm looking at right now. The text on the guy says me, the girl walking past him says solar eclipse, and the girlfriend looking horrified at the guy says scientific evidence supporting the, di the diagnosis of staring at the sun. Sorry, the dangers of staring at the sun. Scientific evidence supporting the dangers of staring at the sun. So <laughs> that's one example. Another famous image macro meme example is the baby clenching fist meme. So here you just have a cute baby clenching its fist in satisfaction. And the one that I'm looking at right now says, go to McDonald's, get Happy Meal, extra chicken. <laughs> and then the last one, this is my personal, one of my personal favorites. If anyone's seen the movie Mulan, there's a point in the movie where I forget, someone does something that's very noisy, and then there's a man that says, now all of China knows you're here. And so <laughs> this is the image, and people will superimpose text on the image. Again, the example that I'm looking at says, when you're trying to have a snack at 3 a.m. and you drop a spoon, and then there's just the picture with the guy saying, now all of China knows you're here. When you're trying to have a snack at 3 a.m. and you drop a spoon. So there's just a couple examples of image macro memes. Uh, it's worth noting that not all internet memes are image macros. Internet memes can be GIFs and videos and even behaviors. One example of a behavioral meme might be the planking fad. If, if you kids remember that, people just lying in a stiff planking fashion uh, on different random objects in public. Internet memes haven't just evolved in terms of occupying more mediums, though the nature of memes have themselves changed in a fundamental way from my perspective. And I've been following meme culture for years, kids. <laughs> I don't know why I keep calling the audience kids. Um, recall that Godwin's Law was not just another shit post on Reddit. Rather, and again, Godwin's Law, one of the first internet memes. My understanding is that the law had a normative goal attached to it, right? It's to spread awareness about this troubling conversational pattern, comparing everyone to Nazis. So there's a serious motive behind the distribution of Godwin's Law. But nowadays, needless to say, this is not the case with most internet memes. Contemporary internet memes are often silly and absurdist in nature nowadays and are distributed not by conscientious citizens like Godwin looking to make a positive change in the world, but rather by internet trolls that, in the words of Alfred from The Dark Knight, just like watching the world burn, trolls behind their keyboards laughing as the world decays into madness. Of course, it would be naive to suggest that internet memes are all just fun and games, right? Despite the fact that internet memes have become more silly and absurdist in a lot of ways, the widespread distribution of internet memes can nevertheless have massive social consequences. They can, for example, be used in the service of political propaganda, which we saw during the bloody meme wars 
that took place during the 2016 presidential election in the United States, which included, but was not limited to, the Russian disinformation campaign. In this episode, I want to talk about both of these aspects of internet memes. One, the politicization of memes. And two, the increasingly absurdist nature of memes. And let's start with the political aspect here, right? It's undeniable, I think, that internet memes are used as a form of activism, right? And I think it's fair to say that internet memes played a significant role in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. According to Urban Dictionary, a very official scholarly source, quote, the Great Meme War took place from June 16, 2015 to November 9, 2016, and was the internet battle between supporters of Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Gary, a.k.a. Aleppo, Johnson, and Jill Stein. Attacks and battles took the form of arguments and memes in comment sections, threads, videos, photos, and more. These memes were used to attack a candidate or sway their supporters, end quote. So a first point to make here is that political memeing, for better or worse, has empowered citizens who were previously non-political to participate in the democratic process. So Matt Brainard, the former director of data for President Trump's campaign, says that the politicization of memes started with, quote, a bunch of folks who maybe were not initially political, but have tech-related savviness and had their hideouts online in forums like 4chan, end quote. One thing to point out here before going further is that memeing is not just a phenomenon of the political right. I know that 4chan is often associated with far-right extremists, and I think for good reason, but the left has also used memes in an effective manner in the past. An, an early example of this was seen during the 2008 presidential election, when a meme targeted against John McCain went viral. So Joan Donovan, writing for the MIT Technology Review, writes, quote, In 2007, for example, as he was campaigning for president, John McCain jokingly started to sing, Bomb, 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 bomb Iran, to the tune of the Beach Boys' popular song, Barbara Ann. McCain, an Iran warhawk, was talking up a possible war using the well-worn tactic of humor and familiarity, easy to dismiss as a joke, yet serving as a scary reminder of U.S. military power. But it became a political liability for him. The slogan was picked up by civilian meme makers who spread and adapted it until it went viral. His opponent, Barack Obama, in essence got unpaid support from people who were better at creating persuasive content than his own campaign staff, end quote. So, again, that's an example of the political left using a meme to great effect. Now, in this case, I'll admit, John McCain essentially did the meme maker's work for them. And I will also say that I think it's fair to point out that, generally speaking, the political right has, up until this point, been better at memeing than the political left, right? This is illustrated by the vitality and success of the Pepe frog meme, if you are familiar with that. I know the Pepe frog, so this is a kind of a humanoid, smug-looking frog that was used by the right during the U.S. presidential election in 2016. Um, supposedly, it was appropriated by not just the right, but the alt-right, and I think this may be true. But I know that the meme is also used for other purposes as well. Um, for example, as recently seen in Hong Kong in 2019, Pepe the frog was used by protesters in Hong Kong 
as a symbol of liberty and resistance, right? So these things are constantly changing. Anyways, the political right is better at memeing than the political left. That's my point. This is just my perception. I'm not going to go into an in-depth analysis as to why this might be the case, but it's worth noting that I'm not alone holding this opinion and that many people on the left agree that the left has been less effective in meme warfare than the political right. Nellie Bowles, writing for the New York Times, writes, quote, Organizers on both the left and right said the left has so far been slower to adapt to meme politics. To catch up, Sean Eldred's husband of the Facebook co-founder, Chris Hughes, is working on creating shareable content with Stand Up America, a progressive nonprofit that opposes President Trump. And the activist John Sellers, The Other 98%, has received funding from Open Society Foundation, a group backed by Mr. Soros. You don't want to be grandpa in the nightclub, like, hey, content creators, today we're going to meme about how to revitalize coal communities, said Rob Flannery, 26, a former digital communications manager for Ms. Clinton's campaign, and now creative director of Priorities USA Action, a Democratic super PAC. It has to happen organically. So the next thing now is to more effectively organize the memers, end quote. So, again, this indicates that the political left has recently caught on to the importance of meme warfare in contemporary politics. T today I actually came across a brilliant leftist meme about how the left can't meme. So the meme is broken up, again, I'll just describe it for you. The meme is broken up into, there are two photos. In the upper photo, there's a guy wincing, and this is, I think, supposedly supposed to be a conservative. And he's saying, the left can't meme. And then in the bottom frame, there's another man who I presume is a liberal who says, sorry, we're too busy educating ourselves, doing research and sharing facts. <laughs> so I think <clears throat> that's an effective meme uh, by the left, which illustrates self-awareness of the fact that it's almost a meme that the left can't meme, right? <laughs> and they're noting that. Now, in talking about the role of memes in politics, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention the fact that Meme warfare isn't just being fought between different political parties within the United States, but it's also being fought by international countries attempting to interfere with the U.S. democratic process. The main example I have in mind, of course, is the Russian disinformation campaign that took place during the 2016 presidential election. Now, I don't want to get into how influential this campaign was, or specifically into the question of whether or not Donald Trump would be president if the Russians hadn't engaged in this disinformation campaign. All this is extremely politically fraught, and frankly, I haven't done enough research into the extent of Russia's meme warfare. But I know enough to say that the Russians absolutely did engage in this disinformation campaign, and they did so by targeting particular subgroups of the population. For example, African Americans, veterans, conservative Christians, a lot of the research detailing the campaign by the Russians was conducted by Rene DeResta, who was previously the director of research at New Knowledge, a cybersecurity company that monitors disinformation. Definitely check out some of the work that she's done if you're interested in learning more about what the Russians did in 2016. Again, this is Rene DeResta. Um, one example of a Facebook meme account that was created by the Russians um, specifically by the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, was the Army of Jesus Facebook account. And this was a Facebook account created by the Russians directed towards conservative Christians. And I'll give you one example of a meme that they put out. So 
In the meme that I'm looking at right now, you have Jesus arm wrestling Satan. And in the top of the meme, it's, it says Satan. Satan says, if I win, Clinton wins. And then Jesus responds, not if I can help it. <laughs> so again, obviously this meme is in the service of Donald Trump. Specifically, it's trying to motivate conservative Christians to vote for Donald Trump and definitely not vote for Clinton. The implication being that Satan is rooting for Clinton. So, okay, zooming out, I think we can ask, what does the newfound role of internet memes in the political process mean for our country? Well, the short answer is nothing good. The politicization of memes highlights the fact that persuasion matters more in politics nowadays than truth does. Now, perhaps I'm just being naive. Perhaps politics is and always has been war by other means to steal a phrase from the Prussian military theorist Karl von Clausewitz. Fair enough. But the dumbing down of politics, the role of moral outrage in politics, has definitely been elevated in the social media madness world of fake news and alternative facts that we now all inhabit. Information pollution making the media environment ever more toxic every day. You know, the communist revolutionary Vladimir Lenin once said, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. I think a modern incarnation of this quote is summed up perfectly by Rene DeResta, who I already mentioned. DeResta says, if you make it trend, you make it true. And this is the collective epistemological predicament that we are all in. If you make it trend, you make it true. And I think it's this epistemological predicament that has dangerous implications for the long-term longevity of democracy. A healthy democracy obviously requires an educated, well-informed populace, a populace that at least agrees on basic facts, even if citizens of different ideological persuasions have different interpretations of those facts. But in an age of computational propaganda, in an age of meme warfare, where mass deception is the norm, we increasingly no longer share a common set of facts. One silver lining here might be that it seems as if more people, or at least waking up to the power that memes have in politics following the 2016 presidential election. Uh, Doyle Canning, who wrote a book on the politicization, politicization of memes, writes, quote, People in 2016 declined to take seriously the impact of the memes and clung to this narrative that rational policy discourse would triumph. And it didn't. End quote. Okay, I think that's all I want to say on the political aspect of memes. I want to now turn towards the second aspect of meme culture that intrigues me. Not the increasing politicization of memes, but rather the increasing absurdist nature of internet memes. You know, ever since internet memes have become ubiquitous in culture, they've always been very silly and kind of meta, right? Providing meta commentary on current events. But in the past couple of years, the absurdity of internet memes has just run off the rails. It's crazy out there in meme world. And this heightened absurdity of contemporary internet meme culture is illustrated by the fact that most popular memes nowadays are what are known as dank memes. So again, turning towards Urban Dictionary. Urban Dictionary defines dank memes as, quote, the term dank is often used to describe a meme in which the comedy is excessively overdone and nonsensical to the point of being comically ironic. Dank memes are often intentionally 
added visual artifacts. For example, excessively poor image quality, color, color bleeding, or extremely saturated and modulated colors, or patterns that indicate that the image has been compressed and decompressed extensively, end quote. So dank memes, you know, some people call them internet in-jokes. Um, they often are so played out that they become funny again. And a lot of dank memes are what are called deep-fried memes. I know this is getting very technical from a terminological standpoint, but try to stay with me. A lot of dank memes are deep-fried memes, which are memes that have been, <clears throat> excuse me, memes that have been distorted and run through several filters and are often counterculture and strains to one not familiar with the several layers of encoded meaning. So again, my claim here is that internet memes have by and large become more absurdity, and this can be seen in the fact that most memes are now dank memes, where dank memes used to constitute a fringe faction of the overall totality of internet memes. So to give a few examples of dank memes, and again, it will be very helpful if you look these up as I'm describing them. So one dank meme is called the enslaved moisture meme. So to describe this, you have a water bottle juxtaposed with a humanoid knob face. I think that's the best way I can describe it. Just please look it up, enslaved moisture meme. There's a water bottle juxtaposed with a humanoid knob face, and the knob face says, ah yes, enslaved moisture, because the water is in a bottle, and therefore it's enslaved because it's trapped not free in the ocean. And <laughs> so it's just so nonsensical and absurd, right? Another example of a dank meme, and this is kind of a meta dank meme about dank memes. So it has a teenage, it's a picture of a teenage boy with glasses, sunglasses, and a weird looking hat. And above it, it says, Cancer cancerous normie gets triggered by my dank meme. And then it says, me, with the picture of the boy with the sunglasses. And the boy's saying, this is kind of cringe. Again, cancerous normie gets triggered by my dank meme. Me, this is kind of cringe. So again, it's a meta-dank meme about dank memes. Now, I want to make a particular argument here connecting contemporary internet meme culture with the 20th century art movement known as Dadaism. But before introducing Dadaism and trying to draw the connection between Dadaism and contemporary internet meme culture, I first want to unpack what I mean by the term absurdism in this context. What do I mean when I say that contemporary internet memes are absurd? And doing this requires briefly articulating Albert Camus' philosophy of absurdism. So just bear with me here. Albert Camus was a 20th century philosopher, although he would actually reject the label of a philosopher. But Camus refers to the absurd as the irreconcilable tension between our inevitable desire to seek meaning in the universe and the fundamental fact that there's no meaning to be found, right? So human beings, we naturally want to try to make sense of the world, but the world is deaf to our pleas. So there's this existential angst, this mood of absurdity that we all come into the world with, according to Camus. And this mood of absurdity exists prior to philosophy, right? It's not the result of philosophy. It's not the result of language or thought or conceptualization. conceptualization. It's prior to all that. And Camus thinks that this mood of absurdity gives rise to what he considers to be the most fundamental philosophical question, the question of whether one should commit suicide. I know this is a bit depressing, but for him, this is the fundamental philosophical question, right? Not 
do I know things? What's the morally correct thing to do? No. Do I commit suicide? Camus considers and ultimately rejects two possible answers to this question before offering his own answer. The first is physical suicide. Yes, you should. <laughs> and ultimately, I'm not trying to make light of the suicide stuff. I know it's very serious. Um, but ultimately, Camus says, no, physical suicide isn't the right answer. He says that this is akin to running away from a problem, right? It doesn't solve the problem of absurdity. You're just running away from it. So he rejects that as an answer. The next answer that he considers is philosophical suicide. And by philosophical suicide, he means adopting an ideology or a certain lifestyle that you know isn't necessarily true, but you choose to adopt it anyway, right? So committing philosophical suicide would be recognizing that there is no meaning in the world to be found, and then pretending, adopting some philosophy and pretending that that philosophy is the meaning, right? So say that I just embrace hedonism, for example, the philosophy that says I should maximize pleasure and minimize pain. So it's just, it's like I recognize the absurdity, then I just choose to live a hedonistic lifestyle and pretend that the meaning's there, even though I know in the back of my mind that there is no real meaning to be found in the universe, right? So you're committing philosophical suicide. And you're living in bad faith would be an existentialist way to put it. And Camus rejects this as well. For him, the answer to the fundamental philosophical question, the answer to the problem of the absurd is to embrace the absurd. So he has this fundamental thought experiment, sorry, very famous thought experiment called the myth of Syphysis. So there's this man named Syphysis and he's pushing a boulder up a hill only for the boulder to fall back down again. And this is supposed to be the predicament that we're all in, right? Any efforts that we make in this life, any endeavors or goals that we strive towards, ultimately we are going to end at the same place that we started, non-existence, right? None of us are making out of, out of this alive. So we're all in the situation where we're pushing boulders up hills, we're engaged in projects, we take everything very seriously, but, but the boulder just falls back down. And Camus says to embrace the absurd is to smile while you're pushing the boulder up the hill. He imagines Syphysis shaking his fist at the gods in defiance and smiling and enjoying the toil. It's almost heroic in a sense. So he says, embrace the absurd, but don't commit philosophical suicide in doing it, right? Find things that you're passionate about and pursue those things as you push the rock up the hill. But don't kid yourself. Always recognize in the back of your mind that there is no meaning to be found in this world. So that's his answer to the absurd. Anyways, that's the brief philosophy of the absurd. And, and that's what I mean when I say that internet memes are becoming more absurd. I'm gesturing towards that Camus philosophy of the absurd. One question is, have internet memes, they've certainly gotten weirder. I think everyone would agree with that. But in what sense have they gotten weirder? Have they gotten more absurd in the way that I just described? Or have they gotten more banal, more devoid of freshness and originality? So Dominic Basolto, writing for the Washington Post in 2013, argues that internet memes have evolved so as to become more banal. He chooses the banal aspect. He writes, quote, As everyone and anyone gets into the meme business, the memes are losing their meaning. They no longer transmit intelligent ideas. They only transmit banality. End quote. So again, if the function of memes is to transmit snippets of human culture, Basolto would presumably argue that contemporary internet memes transmit fewer snippets of human culture 
in virtue of the fact that he thinks that these means have lost their originality or their meaning, right? So that's his perspective. But I think that Basalto's interpretation is exactly wrong. Internet, it's not that internet memes are losing their meaning. Rather, they are conveying a greater sense of meaninglessness, a meaninglessness that perfectly encapsulates the existential angst of our contemporary age. So my contention is that internet memes aren't communicating fewer snippets of human culture in the way that Basalto suggests. No, rather, memes are adapting with the culture. Internet memes are tracking the elevated sense of absurdity and meaninglessness that defines our contemporary digital age, our contemporary culture. So riffing on this cultural point for a second, before I forget it, I do think that internet memes have the power to bring people together from a cultural standpoint. Unless the memes are political, then they can be extremely divisive in the way that I've already talked about. But apolitical memes can be uh, very unifying, right? In some sense, memes, internet memes serve as the cultural fire that we can all huddle around, right? So one example is the Area 51 memes that have recently been popularized, right? So there's somebody suggested that we raid Area 51, and this meme went viral, and everyone started creating these different Area 51 memes where the memes depicted scenarios in which people were raiding Area 51 and what they might find when they raided Area 51, right? Area 51 is this place where supposedly the aliens are kept, right? And what I saw in my timeline as the as Area 51 memes were circulating around the internet is I saw friends of different political persuasions both engaging in the fun, right? So it's like we could all just put things aside for a second and engage in this fun. The memes were unifying us as opposed to dividing us as a culture in the way that they can, of course, in the political realm. And that was just refreshing to see, right? I see friends on the, on the left-hand side of the political spectrum and friends on the right-hand side of the political spectrum both sharing these Area 51 memes, right? So one example of an Area 51 meme is it says, when you're running into Area 51 and hear a guard saying, they're escaping the simulation, then there's a picture of a woman at the bottom of the meme. She says, the what? And it zooms in on her face when she says, what? The what? The simulation? So, you know, and there's so many other hilarious examples of Area 51 memes. Two other examples of memes which have unified us as opposed to divided us from a cultural standpoint. The Shaggy memes, Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Uh, this past summer, there's a Shaggy phenomenon where for whatever, I was very weirded out by the whole thing, but everyone was sharing different Shaggy memes where Shaggy was depicted as this kind of superhero and all these different weird situations. Another example is Keanu Reeves memes. Uh, this has been, in case you hadn't heard, this has been the year of Keanu Reeves. He's the actor who played Neo in The Matrix, if anyone doesn't know. And he became a meme this uh, past, again, this past summer. And there are just all these Keanu Reeves memes that have been shared. And it's, it's people fangirling Keanu Reeves. Right? Everyone loves Keanu Reeves because he's this very famous guy who is just very humble and very nice, right? And it was just refreshing to see that this is something we could all agree on. We can all agree that Keanu Reeves is the man, and we can all have fun making memes about Keanu Reeves, right? So again, internet memes, at least a certain brand of internet memes, they can be the cultural fire that we all huddle around. The cultural fire that I think used to be provided by TV and mainstream news. My impression is that 
in the generation before us, there was only a couple of news channels, right? There weren't all these different, there wasn't so much content. There was a couple of main news channels, a couple of very popular shows. There was less content in the digital realm. And you couldn't just stream the shows whenever you wanted, right, on Netflix, like it is nowadays. But there would be a popular show that would air every week at a particular time. And the whole generation of people that were into the show would watch at the same time, right? So that show would be the cultural fire that I was just talking about, that everyone would huddle around. But nowadays, we are living in a sea of seemingly infinite digital content where we can stream and watch whatever TV show whenever we want, right? And we're all trapped in our own informational echo chambers, right? And that's connected to the whole fake news thing. So we're siloed off. There's so much content. We're just bombarded with so many different things. We're not watching the same show at the same time every week like the boomer generation before us. But some of us, at least, are sharing the same memes that allow us to come together in uh, collective cultural fun, you might say. Okay, so now I want to move towards the Dadaism point that I was talking about and connect Dadaism with contemporary internet memes. And my main contention is that both Dadaism and contemporary internet meme culture convey Camus' philosophy of absurdism that I just talked about, albeit in different ways. So let me first just say a few words about Dadaism. So Dadaism was essentially a form of what you might call artistic anarchy. Uh, put differently, Dadaism is to the philosophy of art what anarchism is to political philosophy. So the movement known as Dadaism arose first in Zurich, Switzerland, specifically at the Cabaret Voltaire in Zurich, where performances were held. And then the Dadaist movement shifted to New York or arose in New York by 1915 and then in Paris by 1920. The Dadaist movement was created in reaction to the horrors and alienation of World War I. Dadaist artists were thoroughly anti-establishment. They embraced nonsense and irrationality. They sought freedom from the shackles of logic and reason that they associated with modern culture. So the Dadaists were essentially the indie radical hipster kids of the early 20th century. Uh, the art was communicated through many different mediums, right, including the visual arts, poetry, literature, theater. Some of the main, the main Dadaist principles were first collected in Hugo Ball, who was a main, very prominent Dadaist figure. The Dadaist principles were collected in Hugo Ball's Dada Manifesto in 1916. Uh, Hugo was a German author and poet. He was one of the main proponents of what are called sound poems, which are poems without words or abstract, nonsensical poems. Uh, Hugo thought that by completely obliterating everyday language, sound poems offered a metaphor for life destroyed by war, right? Just as contemporary life was destroyed by the horrors of World War I, so sound poems, uh, by obliterating language via sound poems, it's a metaphor for that. Other notable Dada's figures include Marcel Duchamp, I think I'm pronouncing that right, and the poet Tristan Tizara. So a couple, just to get a sense of what the Dada's art was like. So a couple of famous Dada's artworks, and again, I recommend looking these up. One is called Fountain by Marcel Duchamp in 1917, and this is literally just a urinal that he displayed as an art piece, right? Just a urinal that I think he signed his initials on, and that's Dada's art. Another one, another one is called L H O O Q, 
again by Marcel Duchamp in 1919. And this is just the Mona Lisa painting with a mustache on it. <laughs> so, I mean, if you look up these Dada's pieces, your initial reaction might be, this isn't art. And in a sense, I mean, one might argue that it's not art. It's, it's what Hans Richard Dada, it's what Hans Richard called anti-art, right? He says that uh, Dada represented the opposite of everything which art stood for. Where art was concerned with traditional aesthetics, Dada ignored aesthetics. It's worth noting that Dadaism gave rise to surrealism. So to take a quote from the book Dada and Surrealism, a very short introduction by David Hopkins, Hopkins writes, quote, Dada, for instance, often reveled in the chaos and the fragmentation of modern life, while surrealism had more of a restorative mission, attempting to create a new mythology and put modern men and women back in touch with the forces of the unconscious. Both movements place considerable emphasis on mental investigation. Dada partially saw itself as reenacting the psychic upheaval caused by the First World War, while the irrationalism celebrated by surrealism could be seen as a thoroughgoing acceptance of the forces at work beneath the veneer of civilization. And another quote that I just briefly want to touch upon from this book, which I found very interesting, is the idea of whether Dadaism is actually dangerous as an art form. So again, Hopkins says, quote, In cultures where fascism was once powerful, many would question the virtues of surrendering to the irrational. Right? So the idea is that there's something dangerous about Dadaism because it's blatantly advertising irrationality as a virtue. And you don't want to advertise irrationality as a virtue. I think there's, I understand the criticism, but I think it's, uh, I think the idea that the art movement known as Dadaism is dangerous is itself dangerous. I think it's a dangerous criticism to make because the criticism could be used by some malicious actor to squelch free speech and in particular the freedom of artistic expression, right? So just to take an example, Plato, the philosopher Plato in his ideal state, he wanted to ban literature because according to Plato, Literature functions to augment the emotional part of the human soul in a dangerous way. And for him, the just state and the just individual exists when the different factions of the state and the different components of an individual's souls are all working in harmony. So you don't want one faction of the soul to get out of whack, the emotional part of the soul. So Plato argued that we should ban literature in the ideal state, right? So I think arguing that art can be dangerous in this way can, in a totalitarian state, be used to ban art. And I think that could be t potentially dangerous. But again, I digress. Let me now circle, zoom out, and try to make the connection between Dadaism and internet meme culture a bit more explicit. Right. So again, my contention is that Dadaism and internet meme culture both exemplify Camus' philosophy of absurdism. Right. So just to go back to the enslaved moisture meme, which I talked about, right? Again, knob, bottle water, the humanoid knob saying, ah, yes, enslaved moisture. <laughs> so in some sense, this meme illustrates a recognition of absurdity, right? And an embracement of it in, this, in, the, in the way that Camus said that we should embrace the absurd. And I think the same thing can be said about Dada's works of art, right? They display a recognition and embracement of the absurd, just like internet memes do, right? I mean, just think about The Fountain, The Urinal by Marcel Duchamp, right? Again, it's just blatantly advertising absurdity, 
just as the enslaved moisture meme does. And that's the connection between the two, right? But uh, circling back to the, the two other potential responses to the problem of the absurd, physical suicide and philosophical suicide, I think it's worth noting that in our culture, you've also seen a rise in physical suicide. And I don't have the statistics in front of me, but that's my impression of things. Maybe I'm wrong. But I would also argue that there's also been a rise in philosophical suicide, right? You see more people, for instance, committing themselves to various political ideologies, and that's where they're getting all of their meaning out of life, right? But in addition to a rise in these two things, we see a rise in the embracement of absurdity, which is displayed in the prominence of internet meme culture. Now, so there is this connection, right, between Dadaism and internet meme culture, which I just think is interesting. But it's worth noting that they both convey the meaninglessness and absurdity of their respective ages, right? The, namely, the early 20th century in the case of Dadaism and the early 21st century in the case of internet meme culture. And in both cases, the meaninglessness and absurdity at play is different. Right? With respect to Dadaism, as we've seen, the meaninglessness and absurdity flowed out of the horrors of World War I. Right? That's where the sense of absurdity was kind of grounded in, just the upheaval caused by the First World War. With respect to internet memes, the meaninglessness and absurdity flows out of not any particular war, but out of our new technology and informational overload. It flows out of uh, a world in which we are more connected than ever, but also more atomized and alone than ever. A world in which we have become numb to the material luxuries of the 21st century. A world in which nothing is ever good enough. A world that is filled with its own unique challenges and looming disasters, like the environmental crisis, like gun violence, and the threat of terrorism. Honestly, the defining meaninglessness and absurdity of our digital age in the 21st century is definitely overdetermined, and I'm not going to be able to pinpoint it here. But the basic point again is that the absurdism of the early 20th century and the absurdism of the 21st century, while both absurd, are fundamentally different. And you have two art movements that grow out of this absurdity which reflect it, internet meme culture and Dadaism. I now want to end by just briefly considering the question as to whether internet memes count as art. Are internet memes a form of art? Uh, to set some light on this question, I want to quote a passage from a book by Maggie Williams and Lauren Rezor, which is titled Medieval Memes, Medieval Afterlives in Contemporary Culture. Right, so here the authors write, considering the question of whether memes are art, they write, quote, <clears throat> An internet meme consists of still or sometimes animated image with a short piece of text superimposed over the scene. Debating the artistic value of memes may also have its place. For example, we might ask what differentiates an internet meme from the work of a modern artist like Barbara Kruger. Kruger's feminist collages frequently rely upon meaningful juxtapositions between borrowed photographs and short graphic texts. Memes are very similar in that they make meaning by combining existing images with words inserted later by a secondary viewer slash creator, end quote. So here the authors are suggesting that internet memes do count as art because they are so similar to the feminist collages of Barbara Kruger. And people recognize that Kruger's collages count as art, right? So 
The idea is, if Kruger's collages are art, then internet memes are art as well. I don't, I haven't seen Kruger's collages, so I can't say one way or the other, but just an interesting passage. My basic perspective is that I don't know whether their internet memes count as art, but if they do, then Dada's works do as well, and vice versa. If we want to consider Dada's works as art, then internet memes count as art. And if we want to say that Dada's works are not art, if we want to say that they're anti-art in the way that I commented upon earlier, well then, internet memes are not art as well. I think that Dadaism and internet memes are two peas in a pod, I guess you could say, right? So now I want to formally end the podcast by reading a quote from the philosophy article on internet memes, The Anonymity of a Murmur, which I referenced earlier. This came out in the British Journal of Aesthetics, by the way, right? So Simon Irvine, the author of the article, he writes, quote, Memes are like whispers of art. I like that. Memes are like whispers of art. As with art in general, people make them to express their feelings, to entertain, to comment on various things, or simply to exercise their skill, virtuosity, and wit. Memographic practice, then, should be seen as a kind of artistic practice. It is, however, an artistic practice that reconfigures the relation between producer and product. Memes are, so to speak, art without artists. End quote. I just thought that was a very lovely quote and perhaps a fitting quote to end upon. Thanks for listening, and don't let the absurdity of the modern world get you down. Go out there into the streets and create some nonsensical works of Dadaist art, or log on to social media and shitpost internet memes to your heart's content. Till next time.